This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to It's Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. I'm excited today because I got a couple of my business partners with me. I got uh, Andy Wyman and Ted Dallas are on the line. And we're going to talk about an expert witness case. One of the cool things that we're able to do just uh, because we travel the country a lot and have been fortunate in our careers to see a lot of dogs and do a lot of training. Um, All of us on our team have been qualified as expert witnesses. So we can uh, go out and help defend uh, officers either on a civil liability part for patrol dogs or on the drug detection part. Andy's done quite a few cases where um, maybe a, somebody's made a drug arrest with a dog and they've hired in an expert to try to uh, uh, impede putting this person in jail where he belongs by, you know, trying to attack the dog handler or his trainer or whatever. Andy will come in and, and uh, with Ted's help and defend that officer and their training and everything. So it's been a, it's been a good program. We've done it for years. Uh, I thought it'd be a good time now since uh, they just wrapped up a case just to kind of talk about how you hire an expert, what you look for in an expert, when you need an expert, and then also talk about some of the points. There are some interesting points about this particular case. Just to give you a heads up, uh, some of the ways, you know, there. every time we change our training to update it, then the defense attorneys go out and find ways to try and say what we're doing is wrong. So there's a few new things that they're talking about, and it came up in this case, and I thought it would be a good time to talk about it. So uh, Andy, Ted, how are you guys doing this morning? Doing okay down here in uh, warm South Florida. Very good. So uh, I guess we'll start with uh, Andy. I think this was your case. So maybe just do a little brief background about maybe how you got contacted and um, you know how, how, did the, how did you end up being part of the case? This was a, a case where a handler deploys its dog, um, his dog in uh, around the outside of a car. And uh, the dog indicates to the car or responds as behavior changed to the car. And they're able to perform a search and find some drugs and a, a firearm. And the person in possession of those drugs and firearm had a uh, concealed weapon as well. And he, I believe he was a convicted felon. So because of that, the uh, defense uh, ended up hiring a defense expert and uh, wrote, her opinion, wrote an opinion about um, the dog's training and uh, the way the dog was deployed and various things. And uh, the prosecution... Uh, had that opinion and decided to uh, reach out to us and uh, see if we could help them out as uh, an expert for the prosecution. Um, so this uh, this was a case from uh, last year that we just finished up this year, essentially. Yeah, so the first major point that I will chime in on for uh, the handlers that are out there that are listening is, is that um, the reason why it's important to hire an expert on behalf of the police officer in the deployment. Um, if there is a defense expert is, is clearly you want to um, have as much ammunition in your argument to the court as possible. And if you go to court as a prosecutor and you just have, let's say the road patrol handler only, and they have an expert against you, you're kind of fighting one hand behind your your back because you're going to go in and say, well, my training experience is adequate to uh, 
you know, to work a dog and deploy a dog when my dog did things appropriately. And clearly you're going to have someone with a, you know, master's degree or a PhD or uh, a lot of experience coming in saying that uh, nitpicking your records and nitpicking your video, your body camera, trying to say that this is a cue or this was wrong or here's an issue. And if you don't fight fire with fire, uh, you're kind of at a disadvantage. So I got two questions there, Ted, on that is as a prosecutor, suppose uh, the first thing is the handler. Like, uh, you know, if, if I have a, like, I'm not working a drug dog now, if I was though, and you were handling my case and they brought in an expert, I've trained a couple dogs over 25 years and, and probably have, you know, some, some knowledge behind it, but would you still hire an expert even, even if you have a very experienced handler? I generally would. I guess yeah. it would be that if, if you're telling me that they hired an expert and they have someone on their side that's going to come in and claim to be a neutral uh, evaluator of the case and then say, you know, negative factor one, negative factor two, and negative factor three, and based upon my, you know, PhD or my master's degree or my 25 years as a master handler or evaluator with some other agency or the federal government or something along that lines, and then they nitpick you, um, you, you really, you're, I, I personally believe you're at a disadvantage because, uh, your handler may just say, well, I've been a, a cop 10 years and, uh, maybe I have a, a basic college degree and, uh, you know, physical education or criminal justice or something. But then after that, you're not fighting on a level playing field. Well, I know where I was going to is that even if you're a very experienced handler, it's it's no insult when they say hey we're going to bring in a, a neutral party just to, de- to help defend you don't don't take it no one hundred percent you know one hundred percent I think most lawyers and prosecutors in the country would say it's a wise move yeah and uh, so on that same note um, it, say say you do work in a, a a larger department or it doesn't matter whoever your your trainer was suppose that person is also qualified as an expert but he has a, a, basically an intimate relationship with the training, the certification, the selection of the dog and all that. Is that the right person to use as an expert? Well, I guess you, generally my answer would be no. Um, generally you'd want a disinterested person, someone that's not in your department, someone that's not familiar directly with you or didn't work with you or not generally f- familiar with your dog um, because they want them to come in at a neutral perspective to give an, an objective opinion on the deployment and the records and the training. Sure. Uh, it's all involved in the case. If you bring in your sergeant, uh, who maybe was a former handler for 10 years and trained a bunch of dogs, probably a very capable, articulate you know, person, but yet he's your supervisor yeah. or he yeah. has an interest in his program or, um, you know, the trainer that works with your department or something like that. He obviously earns a living in that fashion. Yeah. So he, the argument clearly is going to be that he or she has a clouded judgment judgment in some way, as opposed to, you know, a guy from another state, let's and, just say yeah. who comes in and does an independent evaluation of the pros and cons of your deployment. And that's where I see that a lot is I think uh, sometimes agencies and municipalities get uh, penny wise and dollar stupid and think, well, it's just a lot cheaper to have this guy because he's already on the payroll and have him do it. And instead of, well, and I will say this, just in defense of the small town police officer who may or may not have a lot of financial resources in their uh, small town prosecutor uh, office, because, you know, experts do cost money and they mildly can be expensive. Uh, you got to do the best you can, uh, I guess. So if you're in a scenario where 
well, my local guy or the guy the next county over that I train with, um, but he's well credentialed and, and that's what I've got, then you take it. Um, but um, I think you got to have somebody. And the best person is the independent person from somewhere else to come in. And then the secondary person would be maybe someone from your general area that's not directly involved. And then your last uh, person to choose from would be, I guess, somebody that's either trained the dog or is in your department that might be a, a, a trainer supervisor. But that would be the third preference, so to speak, um, surrounding it. But then, then the last scenario that I've discussed is obviously not having anyone. Uh, is a severe disadvantage. That doesn't mean that the handler wouldn't be and the trainer wouldn't be valuable uh, to the situation. They they would be valuable to help, uh, you know, basically teach the prosecutor, you know, the weaknesses of the potential the defense experts, you know, finding out about that person and figuring out where their weakness and their credentials and their abilities would be and to help, you know, uh, teach the prosecutor how to present the case and give them you know, a bunch of insight. I mean, they, they can't be just excluded from the case, but they want to, you know, they want to be able to educate the prosecutor because that's where one of the weaknesses lies is that if the prosecutor isn't up to speed, isn't uh, well-educated in canine, which typically they're not, you would need to teach them what questions to ask and how to, and, and how to ask them and what's important and what's, you know, it wouldn't be as important uh, so that they can focus in on, on different facets of dog training and, and get all the right answers out because uh, leaving them to their own devices, they may not uh, get you all the questions you need to be able to uh, bring all the points out. So that would be, yeah, they would be valuable as witnesses, um, but you would want a different expert. And one of the things that it, I always find interesting is that, uh, you know, we get some, some guys who are former handlers or trainers that go to the other side and for whatever reason, um, doesn't seem like it happens as often. And it seems like a lot of times overall, a lot of the, um, people who pop up over the years that have made a decent amount of money trying to defend criminals, when you really look at their background, you know, a lot of them have never, you know, they've never been cops, never, some of them not really have much dog knowledge, but they have the degrees that talk about animal behaviorists and all that kind of stuff. So that's where I think the combination of having a good expert as well as a, a trainer and handler that can explain to the the prosecutor, here's, here's why we do things, you know, and not, that way the prosecutor doesn't take a person who trained hamsters and gives an opinion as 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 valid as when you kind of kind of explain the whole background. So I think uh, we're all on the same page that having the whole group uh, kind of look over everything and, and work together to, to you know, one one uh, idea is probably a good idea. Yeah, I, I really do. I think you really need to not just to allow the prosecutor to flounder. They have to be educated on what's going on and and by you know, giving them all the the insights you can about the uh, expert on the other side, and you know what, where might be their strengths and weaknesses, and and uh, in their ability to give an opinion, and then the handler can you know bring that out as they see fit in in their questioning and in either yeah. a, so a part depot of, if your state dub is it or in a motion to suppress. Yeah. So part of one of the things I thought would be kind of good about this show too, is when you look at the the population we have of of qualified, you know, really good dog handlers across the country. And then you look at the number of people who want to be experts against us. We have so many really good qualified dog handlers. And there's quite a few guys I know that over the years have told me that, that's, you know, such and such city or county asked them to be an expert, but I don't, I don't feel confident with that. 
so but they but they clearly are are um, you know capable of doing it they just don't know so i thought part of this show too is um kind of explain andy you know you get the call and then that way my idea is that if somebody does uh you know has never been an expert witness before but they get asked to do it they can also if they're listening to this podcast they can also kind of know what to expect and see that it's actually something that is beneficial to our profession and, and a lot of times it's beneficial financially to them if they do it on the side or whatever but it's not as a it's not as overwhelmingly intimidating as some people think it might be. Well, you want to get all the documentation you can possibly get. Um, you want to be able to review everything the defense expert has reviewed and, and anything else you can think of. So, um, but at a minimum, you want to be able to see everything the defense expert was able to review and, and render their opinion from. Um, so, for example, it could be body cam videos, if there are any, and who they're from, you know, and, and different angles, if there are any, as best you can. Um, maybe uh, body cam videos, not from just from the incident, but from some other uh, times that the dog was deployed, uh, could be beneficial. Um, any depots, if your state does depots, any testimony that was given, police reports, of course. Uh, the certification documentation, who certified them and how often, and, and that so that you could research then that organization and really know the the rules and laws pertaining to the certification what what ha what the handler has to do to pass and what the dog has to do to pass and how that's evaluated um training records of course uh what's listed in the training records what's written in them is very important for the expert to read and digest and, and be able to form an opinion from um of course deployment records got to go through all the deployment records even though um some of them may not seem to uh, be specifically on point, but you could use pieces of them to help make a point uh, for your opinion. So uh, depending on how your opinion comes up, people even delve into veterinary records uh, if needed. Um, and then also any uh, studies or peer reviewed scientific studies or any kind of websites uh, that provide, you know, any kind of documentation about uh, uh, opinions about how dogs perform and, and different things like that. That's all those things should be uh, read by the expert and uh, to form that opinion. Their, their background, you know, uh, have they trained uh, dogs that match what the dog in question was? Is it a dual purpose dog? Have they ever trained a dual purpose dog? Have they ever worked with a dual purpose dog? Those kinds of things may be things to look into and make sure you find the right. You want to match apples to apples, not apples to oranges. And then I know you're going to write a report based on all of that. Do you get to look at the other side's report by the time you write your own report? Yes. Uh, in this instance, I did. I was able to look at the defense experts' opinion first and then uh, went through all the documentation and then wrote uh, the prosecution's opinion, my opinion for the prosecution uh, of the case and uh, and send it out to them. So, yeah, you get to review that as well. And uh you get to see where they're coming from and, and what their opinion is of, uh, of what transpired. And that's um, one small advantage that the prosecutor and the handler have by hiring an outside expert is that um, really this is a, uh, you, Andy only gets involved or any other expert on behalf of the government are really only going to get involved when they're given notice after the, the defense attorneys first you know, filed the motion and given a witness list that their expert is going to be utilized. So um, it's really just, you know, just so nobody panics out there. You don't have to hire 
an expert for every case uh, that you have for a motion to suppress. It's really to combat the expert that's now been hired by the defense attorney. And they go forth and the prosecutor will, like Andy said, if you're in a deposition state or the expert's going to have to say, I relied on these 17 things like Andy just went through and they'll list them in a report and they'll come out with an evaluation and an opinion in a written report. And then when you hire your expert as the handler, prosecutor, government side, you'll have all that uh, ammunition or information to be reviewed before you go forward, you as in the prosecutor, you as in the handler, you as in the government. But you kind of, the, the cards are kind of on the table, so to speak, and like in poker, you kind of know the hand they're holding before you even get started on the government side. That's one of the things I like about being an expert witness is that, you know, you get to evaluate everything. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if it's a good, if it's a good defensible, like I've done several for, uh, on the patrol dog side, when it's defensible, it's defensible and you can, uh, it's not that nerve wracking because you, if your training and your experience gives you that expert opinion and you see what, how they're going to attack it, it's pretty easy to kind of lay out a argument as to why you believe it's good. And it's just a matter yeah, of, and you, you bring up an interesting point uh, just to highlight one thing for 20 seconds is that if it's defensible, you know, because uh, you know, from an expert standpoint of view, Andy comes in and as a neutral observer and renders an opinion and, um, so if it can be defended, he certainly will. And, you know, sometimes uh, mistakes happen. So the bottom line is from an expert, you come in, you evaluate something. Uh, and if you can help, you will. And, and, you know, if the defense is right, they're right, so, so to speak. Yeah, so that, that's a, a thing. Yeah, I've had several calls where people, you know, they send me all the information. And I tell them, you know, maybe you need to get your checkbook out and, and uh, try and try and help this person because not everything not, – we, we do make mistakes, like you say, so it's – it's important if you are going to be an expert that uh, you don't just want to render any opinion if you don't believe it. Yeah, you have to. You're not just there to provide one side uh, at all costs. You you know it's it's truly uh, you are basing your evaluation in an honest and, and forthright opinion of the of the information that you've reviewed, and and it could go either way. Uh, you just review it all and and you come up with your opinion and and uh, and present it. So, so this case, Andy, going back to the case, after you got all the information, do you want to talk a little bit briefly about the case and kind of how, where it went and, and the fa- a little bit of the facts of the case? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a car stop. The uh, dog sniffed the outside of a car. The occupants were inside the car while the dog was deployed. Um, the dog had a behavior change outside of the car, um, and, but the dog did not come to a final response. And uh, the handler called it as a behavior change to say uh, target odor was inside the car and they ended up getting everybody out of the car and finding drugs and a firearm, concealed firearm on, on one of the occupants. There was two people in the car and um, that person was subsequently arrested. And then we, we obviously came to court. So um, one of the arguments uh, and there was body cam video uh, to review and all the records that I mentioned before and one of the arguments that was brought up is because the dog didn't provide uh, the final response uh, on the video and didn't provide the final response at the scene. Uh, whether or not that meant that this, uh, basically this case uh, should not be, that the dog didn't respond the way it was supposed to, thus there couldn't be uh, a true indication to the car, response to the car, so that they wouldn't have probable cause to then search the car. In Florida, this is a Florida case. In Florida, if a dog indicates or uh, provides an indication to a vehicle 
uh, that vehicle can be searched. You don't have to go stop and write a search warrant or whatever. It's an exception uh, to the search warrant requirement. So dog provides that probable cause. So their attack was to say the dog didn't accurately provide that probable cause based on what they could see on the video and their interpretation of the records. And thus they could then be, uh, their goal was to get the uh, evidence suppressed and uh, the gentleman to, uh, to go free. So Andy, so, how were the records that you evaluated? How were they a pro and a con to the, you know, uh, that was used to attack the handler in this case? Um, well, the records were, were pretty good. I mean, they, they, um, the, what was written in the records was uh, pretty pretty standard throughout the entire years that I reviewed. So it wasn't there wasn't a lot of detail in them. There was uh, some uh, that that worked out pretty well. Uh, there was other detail that was kind of useless. Uh, in this particular instance, they would have, they separated out a behavior change and a final response uh, as in boxes on a form. And and uh, not that that was bad. It just wasn't. It doesn't really make logical sense in that if you as a handler are going to call a response to say, hey, there's a positive response to this location, um, the dog is going to have to have the behavior change that you see and and then provide and then prior to the prior final response, if it occurs for you to call it, they're not going to as a handler, you're probably not going to call a behavior change or call a final response without seeing the behavior change. I mean, the two just don't no, the behavior change has to come before the final response. Very so uh, they articulated, uh, they kept, they had a percentage of times that the dog responded with a behavior change only and not a final response and things like that. And that, that kind of played into the argument on the defense side and uh, needed to be kind of sussed out in both opinions. So that, it seems it seems kind of uh, obvious that if you as uh, to me if you as a handler are going to uh, either in training or in deployments going to say a dog has indicated to a location that the final response has to have occurred that's why you're able to call it thus uh, you know it, it is there so it seems like separating the two outs doesn't seem like it makes a whole lot of sense but but uh, that they did in this opinion it worked out fine um but it was something that complicated the situation just a little bit. Um, How did that ratio work out from training records to deployment records? Well, the training ratio was um, was um, pretty high, very very high in training uh, of of having a behavior change and a final response articulated separately, and then in real life uh, deployments, um, the final response portion was very low. So they articulated that they had a behavior change many times, but not a final response. So the defense really focused in on that uh, this difference uh, in those two high, uh, very high, very high percentage and a pretty low percentage. And because of that, they tried to draw an inference that um, the dog wasn't trained correctly because he didn't perform it as reliably in real life as he did in training. And I, I think potentially the dog probably performed an equal amount of times, um, but in training, the notes weren't articulated well enough to differentiate, maybe, maybe, uh, that there was some uh, corrections done uh, during the training portion of it to get to the final response. So um, it's potential that there was some work done and then eventually the dog got to the final response and just all those little details may have not been articulated well in the records. 
to get there. So the mere fact that it was a checkbox alone and not some explanation could uh, could cause some some ambiguity in what how it all got done and, and kind of be lead to misinterpretations of that information, if that makes sense. So the bottom line is uh, a little more detail and a little more explanation is uh, is all good, actually. Yeah, it's it's much better to kind of explain. Anytime the dog in training doesn't do exactly what it's supposed to do, um, you want to be able to have a reason why it did and uh, how you're improving upon it. And don't be afraid to to mention it. Uh, don't be afraid to point out the dog didn't perform exactly as it was supposed to, and thus these exercises were done or this was repeated in such a way as to perfect or improve or um, you know, recondition the dog to uh, to do it appropriately. I think so, that's an important. Um, I think that's a real important thing to to add in there is that, um, you know, no dog is perfect, and in training, if you're not challenging your dog, you're not really getting any better all the time. So in uh, real training records, and we've we've all looked at them now, in either you know detection side or I see them sometimes on the control side where I'll see in training that a dog has never had a problem releasing. It's like well, then you don't really have good records. So. Your records should show, you know, the ups and downs, and it kind of shows that training is an ongoing process. And it's not just, a, a, you know, just checking a box saying that my dog's perfect all the time, that you can show he was deficient on this day, and then for the next two weeks we worked on this item, and then for the next three months he was no longer deficient there. So I think they're, they're a living document that should show some ups and downs when you're looking at them. I agree. I agree completely. One of the other things that uh, they focused on was the dog reacted in uh, uh, multiple ways. So the final response had multiple ways of, of giving a final response. It had a, I uh, can't remember them all, but it was a sit, a stare, a down, and uh, maybe a bark. I'm not positive. I'm all right off the top of my head, but it was like three or four different things that it had that it did. Uh, to provide a final response. And some of um, one of the arguments they brought out was that uh, because it was a dual purpose dog, um, the dog would perform a similar response to human odor. So if it did an article search and let's say, for example, I'm not saying this was in this case, but in, for example, if the dog downed on articles in an article search as a dual purpose dog, um, and if the dog does a down for drugs, then how would you know it wasn't doing it for human odor versus drug odor? That was the argument that was brought forth by the defense. So by the defense expert. So um, having those multiple ways that the dog can respond uh, actually turned out to be somewhat of a, a weakness, something that we had to go through records and try to come up with explanations as to why that wasn't necessarily a weakness or, or that it at least defend it. So and, what, and, what did uh, you if, say for that? Well, we were able to articulate in training that uh, there was a bunch of human odor out. So in his training records, he was able to note that uh, human odor was uh, in all the vehicles, and not, not necessarily every vehicle they ever trained in, but in a large majority of them. And then at occasions, even people were inside the vehicle, so the dog wasn't reacting to uh, human odor. And then just taking that as the example and then placing it in context, meaning, you know, there's a big difference. Uh, there's a thing in dog training context shift that the dog understands the context of what um, it's in to know what it's supposed to be looking for and what it's supposed to do. So a dog in an open field or, or on a tracking harness looking for something may down on an article during a track, but, uh, but a dog that gets set up in a different way on a car stop 
with a little bit of a, of a pre-stimulation or a setup, you know, putting the dog in the right position, giving it a sit command potentially, and then telling it to search and add a vehicle, it would know what it was looking for because of the context that it's being provided in. So we were able to articulate those things. And then we were able to go through and show um, through the training records that the dog uh, wouldn't be responding to any other odor because of that. So uh, the records need to be able to articulate the differences if you're going to have those multiple ways. And some of those ways may bleed over into some some human odor the dog may find or some other odor the dog may find. You want to be able to have some records that shows that the dog can do it uh, differently and, and know the difference uh, from it and prove that. So that was one of the things we wanted to focus on when it comes to it. Um, Another one of the things that the, the defense experts focused on was uh, blind, double blind, and uh, some kind of reliability calculation during training, which is a pretty big topic. Um, it is, and that was one I was going to try and hit you guys up for. I've got that on a, a list of podcasts I'd like to do this year because I think um, some of the, the certifications have changed a little bit. I know we're seeing a lot more people, uh, experts, and some of the groups are talking about blind and double blind. So maybe we can do that in a future podcast, really get deep into, uh, you know, what what certifications, uh, based on being an expert, what certifications uh, should have probably and uh, the advantage or disadvantage or how, you know, how you look at the blind and double blind training and certifications. Yeah, we would want to look at that, you know, double blind training and versus double blind certification and whether there truly is benefits to that and um, I you think, know, yeah, I think that's stuff. a whole, I think a whole that podcast would, in its own, I think. Yep. Yep. And any kind of reliability calculated based on training, we could talk about that as well. But just to say, to shorten it up for this, uh, for this case, we were able to, um, successfully show to, to the prosecutor and the defense attorney, essentially that this, uh, that wasn't a concern for this case based on the way we, uh, did, developed our information and presented it to them and, and the logic behind the double blind and blind and, uh, uh, and the training that the dog did. So there is a very uh, good explanation to all that kind of stuff. And we'll, we'll save that for another time. So we don't go too far down a rabbit hole. Um, the other thing is uh, because the dog didn't provide the final response and the handler was focused solely on the behavior change uh, and calling it based on that, uh, they wanted to argue that the uh, behavior change is not definitive to narcotic odor. And uh, that's kind of where the context and the training comes in. Um, it was the same kind of same kind of argument, but they separated it out. And then that the behavior is that behavior would be commonplace uh, in other types of odors. So non-volatile uh, signaling compounds like uh, dog urine and pheromones and uh, some other anything else that would be unique that the dog could uh, find is a unique odor and want to trace uh, trace to its source for some reason or investigate further. So, um, so let me, let me, let me jump in Andy. So basically what they were saying is on the video, you know, the dog I assume gave, you know, a, a good head snap towards, towards an odor or something as he's, he's already done the ritual of we're doing a drug search. So the dog is in that context, that frame of mind. I'm next to the road. I'm going around a, a car I'm doing a drug search and the dog had some change of behavior, the, you know, change of his, uh, his, his, uh, way he was sniffing, the head churn, whatever, whatever it was that he could articulate. And then they tried to extrapolate that the dog would do the same thing. If he's running around on a break in a park, just being a dog, that he's going to also do the exact same thing. So they're trying to 
say that there was that almost almost it seems like the way you're describing it is that they were trying to look at a way to where we've always talked about a behavior change they were trying to um, attack even a behavior change isn't reliable is that kind of where they were going yeah they're trying to say that the behavior change isn't reliable because the behavior change could be common to those other odors that aren't necessarily target odors so uh, they're trying to say that the dog could be reacting in that context to dog urine or dog odor or you know other types of pheromones or anything that the dog other animals would put off that then the dog would focus in on those in a similar fashion and it would confuse if you will the handlers uh, interpretation and and uh, again we go back to the training we go as everything in this will always do is go back to the training and back to deployments really um, to use the records to argue that point you know you would go back to training and and see if the dog has been trained about other dogs with dog odor, with uh, loose dogs out, with other animals out, and sh- and show that the dog in the context that it's provided uh, does not react uh, to those to those odors in that way. And you'd want to have some articulation in your records, some kind of documentation that would be beneficial to the expert to see and interpret and know that that's what that's for, and 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 that that happens, and the, how the dog performs. Uh, and how the handler interprets that performance. Yes, yeah, going to like a real world example is, I mean, we've all set up training every once in a while and, you know, maybe you've got eight, nine dogs that are going to run through the training that you've set up in a, a school or whatever and the third dog pees on one of the walls or something. Oftentimes, I think we've all seen it where then, okay, we're going to move the hide. I never move the hide. That's just part of the training now. And I think those are good ways to you know, just use real, real world stuff to add into your training records that the next eight dogs had to deal with with this fresh urine problem as well. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't, you know, interfere, you know, with uh, clouding the odor source, the target odor that you're rewarding for. But yeah, uh, we train in my group uh, here, and I work in Broward County. Uh, we train at dog parks uh, with dogs in the park. So, um, you know, we have loose dogs running around. We have fresh dog urine, fresh dog feces, uh, lots of people moving around, and we're still training. Uh, for to find that target odor in that environment. So um, to say that you, it's it's not easy, but it's also not difficult to notate things like that and, and point it out. And then in real life, you know, in some of the deployment settings, you could actually articulate that, you know, this this dog has performed so many deployments in real life, and in real life, those environments had this this odor in it. You know, this uh, it was a frequently frequently. Uh, had dogs in the air. There were dogs barking right next to the car behind a fence or, you know, anything that you could notate, um, you know, is, that would help with that is always something important to do for an instance where this happens to come up. So uh, keep that in mind when you're keeping not only your training logs, but your deployment logs as well. This this, this attack will probably be something that they'll do. And because of that, we need to have some kind of documentation as an expert to come back at and and argue back to them. One of the others was um, that the handler can't reliably interpret the uh, behavior change in the absence of the final response. You know, the, that the handler is inaccurate in, in evaluating that. And, and that all kind of bleeds back to what we were just talking about. They're, they're similar but different. In the note-taking that the handler needs to provide in his training records is he needs to be able to articulate in those training records that uh, he is seeing the dog react to, let's say, dog and that the dog reacts to it, but the difference in the dog's behavior from that to target odor. So using using dog pee as an example, if the dog 
um, turns its head and, and traces down dog pee, my dog in particular, will not be excited about it. In other words, he's not going to have a fast tail wag. He's, he's, he's not going to be in anticipation of the toy coming. He's, he's going to be interested in it, but uh, he's probably going to stand over the top of it with a very stiff body and his hair will stand up on his back and he'll end up licking at it at some point and, uh, and then peeing on it. And, uh, you know, that's pretty easy for me to articulate the difference between that and a, and a, a target odor. So uh, showing that you can see the difference and actually noting that in the records to say, this was out. I saw the dog respond. I saw the difference in the behavior and I'm able to tell that difference is very beneficial uh, to uh, an expert and yourself as a handler to testify in court if this uh, argument is ever brought forward. So those are just some of the things that uh, that we had to argue against. She, the uh, expert in this brought up many other points, but uh, uh, we were just focusing in on these as, as the big ones as we went through. So, so Ted, um, I imagine when, when you're looking at cases as a prosecutor and you know, you know, you, obviously a prosecutor's uh, you'll you'll start to know some of the cops when they're the, you'll know they write good reports. You'll know if you do a lot of the dog cases, you'll know some of the dog handlers are pretty squared away. That's got to help your decision when you know I'm going to go ahead and fight this case or I'm going to try and plead out or whatever. So when we keep harping on records as a prosecutor, I would imagine you know that's it's all put together where you know you're looking. You people have reputations, and if if you don't know that guy, then the next thing you do is you're going to dig through his records right away and and look at it. So. I, I guess my point of asking you is we really can't overemphasize the importance of, of having good, good, solid training records. Yeah, 100%. And, and just to follow up on that is that um, I just want everybody out there that's listening, which is the vast majority of you are working police officer, dog handlers, that you got to remember that we as prosecutors, even the defense attorneys and the judges are coming at it from an angle of civilians. And by civilians, I just mean that, you know, we're non-dog handlers and we don't, we aren't well, well versed, uh, most of us at least in dog theory and dog training and dog handling and um, animal behavior as a, as like a, a true police officer dog handler experience is. So when I use the acronym, the KISS method, and I, again, you know, the keep it simple, stupid method, I don't mean, as Andy's articulated, I don't mean, you know, don't keep good records and don't keep detailed records, but I mean, it's just so much easier to conceptualize and present to the court when you have good training and you have a solid deployment and you have a good change of behavior, like you mentioned, head throws and tail wagging and all those things that your dog does when it's in odor that you see all the time. And then you do get that final response. Um, that's so much more preferred from a courtroom civilian perspective because it's an easy sell to a civilian judge and a civilian prosecutor who's evaluating the motion to suppress because things kind of happen along the straightforward nature of the deployment. So, um, you know, if, if you, everybody kind of, obviously that's an optimal scenario, but if everybody kind of works towards that, um, it's so much easier for your prosecutor and your judge to comprehend. Sure. And Andy, so on the end of this case, um, can you kind of, how did, how did this case end up? You, you did your report, they did their report. Um, you turn it all back into the prosecutor, then wh what happened with this with this particular case? Uh, well, just to, to tag on to Ted's, and then I'll finish that question, is is the optimum way to do this. Uh, the optimum way, of course, with dog training is to have the dog 
come to a final response. It'll save you from all these tax, uh, these attacks. So, so always, we, we're not trying to advocate that people don't have to give a final response. I mean, the, the best way to do it and the most optimal way to save you from any of these arguments is to, is to you know make sure you get that good training down. This is just in case it doesn't happen in, in that instance. So, in this case, um, we were able to provide a sufficient enough uh, uh, report. Uh, with theirs that the uh, defendant ended up pleaded out to 10 years in prison. Um, so uh, you got 10 years for, for the crimes that, that went forward. So we never went to a motion to suppress or a trial um, after getting a report. And we do depositions here in Florida. Um, they ended up, the defense ended up pleading out to 10 years. So um, I consider that a win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guy went to jail. He was a bad guy in this particular case. Was this a well-known expert, and has that expert have we have they been doing a lot of a lot of work um, against dog handlers right now? Or yeah, so um, uh, it's Mary uh, Cable C A B L K. She um, has been an expert in many other cases around the country. I think she's also on social media quite a bit. Um, she's this is her thing. She she um, defends against law enforcement officers and in different uh, detection work uh, that's out there. So she has been successful in other places um, with with her opinions. So and there's nothing wrong with as, um, you know, the defense attorneys get together and, and think of ways to attack law enforcement on for every part of law enforcement trying to get, you know, their clients off on charges. As a community on our side, uh, on the police talking on our side, there's nothing wrong with us sharing information about experts who are out there and, and, um, not in a slanderous way, but it's just here's here's these this person here's their background. Here is um, some of the the work that they've done, and you know if they come to your city, at least you know generally you know where they're where where they're coming from. And I think that that's a here's the guy. It's an adversarial system, so you know there's nothing wrong with uh, uh, analyzing your adversary's pros and cons so you can combat them. Exactly. Court. Exactly. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's just part of learning, you know. Uh, um, you know, it, it can be used as we're using it for here as a learning process for everyone to, you know, try to improve upon, you know, their record keeping and their training potentially. Uh, you know, it's 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 a you know it's a good thing to discuss and to to bring about and uh, to know, you know, you want all the work you do as a trainer, as a co- as a cop, as a dog handler, as a dog trainer. You want all your work to be for a reason, for a win, you know, to get uh, people in jail and to, to get drugs off the street. So, um, you know, if there's a way for us to relay the information to other law enforcement officers out there that, uh, you know, here's here's how you can be attacked and, and here's some ways to, to improve upon it, you know, be sure to do, you know, to pay attention to that that's out there. I mean, they're going to use, um, as, as she did in this case, you know, different groups and organizations like uh, swig dog and um you know different different uh bodies that consider themselves as a best practice that's what swig dog does and they'll use that um you know to try and argue what the best practice is and you'll have to use you know what you what you can glean from training records and what you write down and how you keep your records what information you keep to to show that you do follow all the best practices out there so uh you know, make sure you understand all of that as you go. So any final thoughts about this case in particular? It sounds like, I mean, it, it, it was pretty straightforward. They had their 
they had their ideas about the case. The prosecutor and hired you. You were able to, to obviously give a opinion that swayed their their ideas. If the guy pled guilty, so any other uh, things to wrap up just this particular case? Well, I think the big bullet points would be if they hire an expert, please go out and hire an expert. Uh, don't take it lightly. Um, you know, realize that uh, there's probably some people out there. Um, you know on social media and on different websites that, that are probably going to listen to and learn uh, and be experts against you. And, and uh, you know, you just, it's part of life. It's the way it works. And, uh, you know, whatever you say and do and put out there could potentially uh, influence, you know, opinions of people. So be cognizant of that as when you post on social media. And let me, uh, let me, let me add into that point right there is when you said, don't take it lightly. And I think we've all seen it where, either the department, the handler, the prosecutor, but when this happens, sometimes they do take it lightly and they don't get another expert and they just either go without an expert or they, you know, just figure, well, this isn't that big of a case or whatever. And they're looking at the small game instead of the long game. And a lot of these experts, when you start looking at their background, a lot of them have what they consider wins, but they're wins when they're not playing against anybody else on the other side. So they're able to go in and say, I testify in this many cases, but they aren't going against any other experts or qualified experts or anything. So if they're coming to your town, you're not doing it just for yourself. You're doing this for our profession. You don't want to get bad case law and you don't want to give these people additional credibility by simply letting them come in and spew out whatever they want to and then having the courts listen to it. So it's 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 important for our whole profession. Yeah, and just on the prosecutor side of things, uh, to my handler friends out there, um, make sure that you at least have a good, you know, hour or two hour meeting with the prosecutor and the uh, expert witness that you hire so that you all get on the same page that the handler and the expert can educate the prosecutor about, uh, you know, make sure you cover this topic and that topic. You know, maybe this is a good five or six questions for topic A and a good five or six questions for topic B and explain to your prosecutor why you need to go into those things and ask those questions, what the meaning is. Um, and you want to do that like 30 days or so before the hearing because everybody wants to dot the I's and cross the T's so you're ready, you know, two or three weeks from now to go in um, and you're best prepared to handle that in court. Yep. So I th- we're getting a little long here, so I kind of think we should wrap this up. Uh, um, I guess the big takeaway, obviously, is that, you know, expert witnesses are, are part of our profession and it's uh, important. Uh, Hits Canine uh, does a lot of expert witness stuff, so if you if – you, uh, find yourself in this situation, reach out to any of us. Not that we necessarily say, yeah, we're the expert, but we, if, if it's not something that, that we can help you with, we definitely, you know, have a network of other experts that, you know, you know, we're all about at hits canine. We're all about protecting our profession. It's, it's not, you know, we're all working cops and prosecutors and stuff. So it's not just uh, trying to make our name better. It's, it's making our whole profession better. So, you know, go out and hire an expert. And, and also if, if you're a brand new expert maybe it's the first time you're going to be an expert reach out to any of us we're happy to help you walk you through some of the stuff what to expect and and you know it might my dream would be to have a thousand expert witnesses across the country that and, and there's a thousand there are because there's enough good trainers out there that we could do this you know that have plenty of them out there that every time one of these people shows up and starts making a lot of bit of money going down you know that some rabbit hole we could uh, counteract them very quickly and uh, just protect our own profession so Andy, you got any uh, final thoughts? 
Uh, keep good training records. Uh, make sure you write down all the pertinent stuff and go to classes. We'll do uh, at HITS, we'll do a class uh, about this case in a little bit more detail and uh, some other classes about uh, what you do on a training day and things like that. So we'll we'll have some good classes coming up. So be sure and go to schools and as many classes you can get to, to advance your education in this in this area. That's a very good point. How about you, Ted? Any uh, final thoughts? Um, I think the majority of the stuff's been covered, so I won't beat the dead horse. I'll, I'll just do a little PR and just say, just like Andy said, that uh, currently right now uh, hits our national conference, which about a thousand handlers or so come to, is scheduled for uh, early uh, July uh, this coming uh, to 2021. So, um, and we'll have classes uh, talking about these things and expound upon them in a greater detail and encourage people to go out and uh, as best you can in 2021 back on the horse after the pandemic has run its course. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you guys, thanks. I, I appreciate jumping on. Um, I, I know everybody's a little bit busy, but I thought this was, and talk to you guys, I thought this would be a good uh, case to talk about real quick. Uh, and, and Andy's mentioned a couple of times too. I like social media. I like uh, getting on. There's some, some good, pages on social media i like reading about what's going on i like seeing people's opinions and stuff but read those and then kind of remember that um no matter where you're at uh whether if you're posting your own stuff or you're having a conversation or whatever you know keep it professional because uh you know it's open to everybody so you know you're gonna you, you might see it again sometime when you post things so you got to make sure you you keep it very professional so with that i think we'll sign off you guys thanks have a good weekend and uh I appreciate it. Hitsk9.net for any uh, information about Hits. Uh, the show notes will have all of our email addresses, including our other business partner who wasn't uh, able to be here today. Jeff Barrett uh, is our fourth business partner. I'll put all of our uh, email addresses in the show notes. You can find us also on hitsk9.net. You contact us very easily there. Um, again, if you guys need expert witness or just have a question about training, whatever it is, we like to be a resource for everything in our profession. So reach out to us. That's what we're here for. And uh, you guys, thanks. Have a good day. If you're looking to make an investment in your canine career, come the HITS 2021. There's no substitute for the real thing. Whether you're a new handler who's looking to learn more about dog training or an experienced trainer who's looking for new training ideas and techniques, come the HITS 2021 where the investment is well worth the return. HITS 2021 will have more classes and more vendors who give away more free raffles and gifts and free cash than ever before. HITS is the world's largest canine seminar and is open to police officers and military members. Our experience makes the difference. You've been there and we've been there too.